Hello. In a recent speech on the future of the NHS, I made the case for a series of shifts which I said were necessary for the service to succeed in the medium term. The last and perhaps least obvious of these was a shift towards a new social contract of the public and patients. We need, I argue, to move away from a world where people, particularly perhaps the most disadvantaged people, feel themselves to be the passive victims of their own health status and the passive recipients of services delivered by professionals. How, I asked, could we foster in people a greater sense of agency towards their health while at the same time encouraging everyone to see how important their attitudes, choices and behaviours are if we're to protect the core principles of the NHS, whilst also improving performance and outcomes? In essence, the relationship between the NHS and the public needs to be one in which we give more, but also expect more. So today I'm interested to discuss that idea and others with someone who has for some time and with great effect been making the case for the idea of the person as a citizen and to put that idea at the heart of how we see ourselves and how those with power and authority see and treat us. Bored of the same big ideas podcasts that teach you nothing? Sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes? Want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking? Then you've come to the right place. This is Forward Vision, the podcast presented by Matthew Taylor and brought to you by the Forward Institute. So I'm delighted to welcome John Alexander, co-founder of the New Citizenship Project, an author in 2021 of an influential book entitled simply Citizens. Hello, John. How are you? Very good, thank you. Lovely to be here. It's great to talk to you. It was fascinating for me reading the book. There are so many people you talk about in the book that I know, and quite a few actually I've spoken to on this or its predecessor podcast. It was like meeting old friends. Now, let's just start, John, with the core argument. You want to argue that we can understand the history of humanity in terms of three phases, two of which have taken place and one of which needs to take place. Or maybe, well, you can explain. So there's a long period prehistory of kind of communal living. And I guess you would refer to that as a kind of citizenship era. Then with the emergence of civilization as people become more sedentary, we move into this long period in which people are subjects, where society is hierarchically organized. And then in the 20th century, we move into this in late 19th, 20th century, we move into this period of consumerism, where people are no longer seen as subjects, but they're seen as consumers. And what you want to do is to go back to, in some ways, that long era of time when we felt ourselves to be neither subjects nor consumers, but citizens. But obviously, not to go back in time to prehistory, but to think about how that idea of citizenship applies to the modern world. Is that an adequate summary of your kind of historical sweep? Yeah, it's not a bad view. So it's just kind of back to the future pitch, as you say. So the idea of people as subjects is one that comes about with the first kings and the first empires and is beautifully heralded by the reign of King Sargon of Akkad in about 2500 BC. And all of the first ideas of subjecthood, the first ideas of patronage, the first ideas that 
there are a God-given few who can lead us to the best outcomes for society as a whole, come with that beginning and spread across the world. And I think that's the thing I would underline is that for me, these three stories are stories about how the best outcomes for society result. So the subject story says the God-given few know best, and if we follow them, then they will lead us to the best outcomes. The consumer story says individual self-interest will add up to a collective interest. So if we all pursue individual self-interest, that will lead to the best outcomes for society as a whole. And I think the citizen story, and it would be interesting maybe to dig back into the extent to which that is a very old story and to the extent to which it is something new. Regardless, the idea of the citizen story is that all of us are smarter than any of us. And so the right thing to do actually is to contribute our ideas, energy and resources to the pursuit of the best outcomes for society as a whole and to encourage others to do so as well, because that is how the best society will result. And I think that's the opportunity to step into in this moment in time. So you see, what's fascinating for me about this, John, is that this is a kind of historical sweep, which is very similar to one that I developed myself, but yet it's different intellectually. I use a kind of different foundation for thinking about these periods, but also I come to a slightly different conclusion about what's necessary. So we're here to talk about you and to talk about your book, but I think it's interesting just to tease out the kind of contrast with the way in which I would look at this. So my account is around as is yours, I think, different ways in which people do things together. And so my three categories are solidarity, which is a view that the way in which we do things is based upon that which we share, our values, our kinship, our sense of belonging. And that characterizes the prehistoric period. Then hierarchy, which is a view that says the best way to do things is as the word suggests, through some notion of a hierarchy based upon some set of principles that put some people in charge. And then thirdly, and this is what we see with the post-Enlightenment period and the rise of modernity, individualism. And individualism argues, well, no, the most powerful way to get things done is for people to pursue their own self-interests, enhanced through particularly the mechanism of the market as a way of aggregating those interests. Now, that's quite similar to your kind of view. I guess what's different is that you take the citizenship idea, which is closest to my solidarity idea, and you want that to be the way in which we do everything. Whereas I guess my perspective is each of these ways of thinking are chime with voices in our head. We know we do things because we're told to. We do things because we think we should because of the kind of person we are. And we do things because we want to for ourselves. We want to be authors of our own story. And my argument is that the best policies, organizations, societies are ones that somehow align and combine these different drives. Now, I think the difference, John, is that you want to argue that that citizenship drive, that solidarity drive, that kind of egalitarian belonging kind of drive is the best one. And that's the one that should dominate our lives. I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think perhaps what I'm doing is actually speaking from maybe from a slightly more contextualized perspective. So I think I would be sort of comfortable with the idea of advocating for balance rather than for dominance of any given dynamic. But the starting point, I believe, is profoundly out of balance. And so I think what we have at the moment, the society we're living in today is hugely over-dominated by what you would call individualism and what I would call the consumer story. And therefore, there's a need for some sort of shift. 
And I also, the other thing I think this idea of thinking of it through the lens of story brings is it helps to understand the particular dynamics of the moment in time we're living in, where actually the consumer story that has been so dominant has come to shape every aspect of our lives. It's a paradigm out of which everything else arises, including, let's take our politics, including what I would call consumer democracy. So we live in a form of democracy at the moment where the only agency the individual has is to choose who to give their power to and where we're encouraged to make that choice on the basis of individual self-interest, that the entire logic is individualistic. And that idea of democracy simply cannot cope with the challenges that we face in this moment in time, as, as we're seeing very live at the moment. And in that moment, what's happening as that sort of over-dominant individualistic consumer story collapses, we're seeing a vacuum created into which what I would argue that the, what you would call hierarchical, I would call subject story, the, the strongman authoritarianism logic is being sucked. And what I'm really, uh, the sort of peak passion of my work is we cannot see those two things as the only option, the consumer democracy or the return to subjecthood. Because if we do, then we will push ourselves into the arms of the subject story again. There has to be another way through this. In the context of democracy, I think I, I would argue that a citizen democracy is one in which we have the ability to contribute our ideas, energy, resources, as I say, to the ongoing pursuit of the best outcomes. Then where the structures and processes of democracy invite us to do that and encourage us and are designed to make the best of that collective intelligence. And again, I know these are ideas you've worked with extensively as well, but I think the particular value really of seeing this through the lens of those stories and, and thinking more about which story is dominant, which story is the shaping story of our time is a very important step in order to understand the challenges. And I think the last thing I would say in this is, I don't think we can choose not to have a dominant story to sort of float between, because my underlying uh, sort of starting point in my work is two fundamental beliefs about humanity. The first is that we are by nature, what I would call citizens, we are collaborative, creative, caring creatures. But the second belief is that we are inherently storytelling and story dwelling creatures. We need stories to understand ourselves and to understand who to collaborate with, what to create, who to care about. And so there will always be a kind of a dominant story, a, a most broadly accepted story from which our institutions and systems are structured. And so in that sense, the idea of some kind of nicely held balance, I don't think is completely possible. I think there will always be something that is the sort of shaping logic. And, and I think we need to acknowledge that that shaping logic today is individualism and that's reached the end of its road. Yeah, no, really interesting point about, as it were, the necessity of a dominant narrative. And of course, you know, as you describe in the book, your outlook is shaped by your own personal journey and particularly being a very successful advertising executive and then reaching a point of kind of disillusionment. And I wonder, this starting point for you, you talk a lot in the book about the fact that someone says to you when you're developing an advertising campaign, remember that people receive 3,000 consumer messages a day and your kind of horror at that idea. But what's interesting is you don't make a distinction in the book, which has been made by other authors, and I think here particularly someone like Daniel Bell in his book, The Cultural Contradictions of Consumer Capitalism, between the producer and the consumer. So there is a kind of literature that says there is a kind of dignity in being a producer, even within a hierarchical organization, making things, which is lost 
when we become consumers, this trivializes us, this changes our relationship to the material world. I love the book, but it's kind of interesting, that kind of producer-consumer dichotomy, it doesn't appear. I feel like the producer-consumer thing still just stays within the frame of humans as units of economic production and consumption. And I think I'm trying to speak to something much broader and bigger than that. For me, it's about who we are as human beings and what our role in relation to one another and in relation to society is. And one of the distinctions I really enjoy playing with is the distinction between nouns and verbs, right? And so one of the ways I articulate the work I do is what we are in this moment in time and what we're encouraged to be is consumers who occasionally vote and bring the orientation of the consumer to bear on the act of voting. And what we are actually, I believe, in our deeper selves and what we want to be is citizens who sometimes consume, sometimes produce, sometimes come up with ideas, sometimes create, not in a kind of economic sense, but in an artistic sense, sometimes collaborate. And like that, all the verbs flow thereafter. I think that's more where I'm coming from. Yeah. And look, I, I think this is a really interesting kind of debate. And I... I tend to agree with you in the sense that I don't really accept this idea that there is this kind of glorious dignified story of people as producers and then we are kind of debauched by being consumers because the nature of work itself as Marx of course argued was has changed and actually I think the critical figure historical figure in all of this is Henry Ford and the reason that Henry Ford is such a deeply significant figure is not only that Henry Ford of course accelerates. He doesn't invent the conveyor belt kind of way of working, but he's the person who really brings that to the heart of kind of modern manufacturing. And of course, he uses F.W. Taylor as this figure who breaks down work into the smallest elements. So we associate him with a particular kind of form of highly routinized work, alienated kind of work, where you lose any kind of connection with what you're producing. But of course, Ford's deal to his workers was, look, you're going to have to work in this particular way, but I'm going to pay you twice as much as most people are paid. And you're going to make a car so cheap that you as an ordinary working man can buy the car. So Ford brings together this kind of idea of highly routinized, mindless kind of work with the idea that the compensations for that work lie as consumers. Let's get back into the book a bit more. One of the things that's rich about the book, John, is the examples you give of people and of organizations who stand for this notion of citizenship. Share with us a couple of examples of people. And I'm also interested, John, because the book's two years old, what has changed in relation to some of the case studies you give? So let's start with a couple of the people that you talk about. It's actually only about 18 months old. So it first came out in March 22, just like weeks before the tanks rolled over the border. So the world has changed significantly, as you say, but it's not quite that far in the past. I mean, to be honest, my favorite story from all the research for the book is the story of the transformation of the Taiwanese government over the last decade or so, which begins with the government launching what they called their economic power-up plan with communications that said things like, let's not waste time talking about policies and complicated things like that. We'll get on with growing the economy and you get on with your lives, which was this kind of a genre of communication, a genre of message I like to call shush little people just go shopping, which I think bridges back to what we were just talking about. 
it seemed to go down all right originally, but then a group of hackers started to organize and they called themselves GovZero because what they were doing was creating parallel websites, the government websites, all with the URLs ending g0v.tw. And they essentially kind of imagined a different relationship between citizens and states with these sites. And time sort of passed, the thing grew gradually. And then in 2014, the government tried to rush through a trade bill with mainland China under the banner of the economic power-up plan. And an Occupy-style protest broke out. And the protesters were using GovZero tools in the parliament space to debate the clauses of the trade bill. And this got out via social media and so on. And, and actually what ended up happening was that the Speaker of the Parliament endorsed the protest promised the protesters that the trade bill would get to scrutiny. And in that moment, the whole sort of story of the relationship between citizen and state in Taiwan shifted. Soon thereafter, the, the ways of working of GovZero started to be brought into government. And then bringing up to relatively recent times when the COVID pandemic hit, someone who had been one of the leaders of the, of the hacker movement was actually a government minister by that point and led this response that was characterized by the three principles, fast, fun, and fair, and essentially crowdsourced what was the most successful national response across the world. And I know, I think this is actually a story that you've investigated yourself in Bridges to the Future with Audrey, Audrey Tang, who was the hacker-turned-government-mentor-turned-government-minister at the heart of the story. But that, for me, is my favorite example of this, because I think it's not only a very powerful encapsulation of the shift from a consumer shush little people just go shopping narrative to a citizen we need everyone on the pitch we need your ideas narrative but it also says something about how that shift might happen which is that it isn't a shift that can gently and beautifully evolve from within the existing systems and structures and i think what we're seeing in britain in this moment in time is that the systems and structures that we have are not going to perform this evolution from within their own logics. It actually, to some extent, has to be created from outside and then be stepped into. It's the Buckminster Fuller theory of change. If you never change things by fighting the existing reality, to change something, you have to create a new reality that makes the existing obsolete. And so that dynamic is a lot of where my thinking and the sort of edge of my learning is at the moment, is how do we actually make this shift? How do we, from a society that is very trapped in the dynamics of the consumer story and the dynamics of over-dominant individualism, but has only been there for 80 years or so, how do we step back into or step out into or step forward into a bigger story of ourselves and how do we create the possibility of that? That's really what I'm most excited about and most focused on. Because a lot of the other stories in the book really are about where this is already happening, but at small scale in Grimsby, where they've gone from litter picks to an organization that ran a community share offer that's been enough to buy a whole street of houses in the town and refit them using good local jobs. Or in Nairobi in Kenya, where an organization that was started by a street kid who'd watched his best friend get stoned to death and then managed to scrape together enough cash to buy a football and charge people a few cents to play has now spread and built into a kind of a social enterprise empire really, although empire is a horrible word for it, that managed to support millions of people through the pandemic. These stories are everywhere when you start to look for them. And yet, only in a few places and only in Taiwan at a kind of national scale, have we seen the citizen story really come to its full potential, I think. And so that's really my obsession in this moment. Yeah. And that takes me to, John, to what I think is one of the kind of really most difficult parts of this. You know that I agree with an enormous amount of what you argue. But 
when I was reading about the individuals, I was reading about the case studies, I was aware of the likelihood that just as in business books that lauds the success of businesses, which then have a very strong record of exactly those businesses that are lauded being once at full. <laughs> the ones that flat, collapse next day. Yeah, flat on their face or get involved in some terrible yeah. scandal. I mean, I did interview Audrey Tang for Bridges the Future, the predecessor podcast to this, and she's great. But I think the last I read about Taiwan was some massive punch-up taking place in the parliament. So the problem is we talk about individuals, but those individuals get burnt out or they succeed. And in succeeding, they start to take on some of the associations that we have with people who are in power, who start to get carried away by that power. You talk about the example of Brewdog in the book. Yeah which is a company which is lauded as being radically different and, and somewhat you know, conflicted and then ends up somewhat conflicted and having documentaries being made about it. So the reason I say all of this is there is a kind of sense that what you're describing is something which happens episodically, has an effect, but then almost always seems to burn itself out. Reassure me that this isn't inevitable. <laughs> I mean, so firstly, I, I, from what I understand of the punch-up in the Taiwanese parliament, I don't think it was directly related to some of the open government working. I think it's more related to the intense geopolitical pressure that, that country's under. But I, I, I do take your point completely, though. And the other caveat I would just offer, I suppose, is that I do talk about the conflicts in Brewdog. I certainly don't allow them to sort of have centre stage as an entirely unchallenged and valedictory story. But I take your point. I mean, I think... I think the way I see it, though, is that this is, we're in a period of time when the story that has sort of worked for a good period of time, I mean, one of the moments I talk about in the book is the year 1984 as the kind of golden age of the consumer story, when the thesis that we could pursue self-interest and that would add up to the best outcomes for everyone sort of seemed to hold. You had Apple and Virgin and Nike all landing in the world as the great consumer super brands. Apple with that wonderful ad, which was a takeoff of 1984 and ended with the line on January 24th, Apple will release Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. And that year as well, you had Body Shop floating on the stock exchange and Band-Aid and the LA Olympics were the first to be funded by commercial sponsorship. So you could buy stuff to solve global poverty, to save the planet, to fund global sport and culture. We had that kind of golden moment. And yet what we're living in now is the consequence of the collapse of that. We can't solve an ecological crisis from within a story that says we're separate from nature. We can't solve an inequality crisis from within a story that says that society's a ladder you climb and you have to push up above everybody else. You can't solve a loneliness crisis from a story that says we're independent, isolated individuals. Like All of that is the case. And in that time... As this story collapses, one of my favorite sort of theoretical frames is the Carter Institute two loops theory of change, which people might want to look up and check out. There's this idea that when something as fundamental as the consumer story falls apart, it has a very strong hold precisely because all of the structures and institutions of our society whether it's Apple and Nike or it's the IMF and the World Bank and even the EU and even the NHS have been built out of that idea of who we are and what our motivations are. And even when that story becomes patently untrue, those institutions are still the structures that surround us. And so the work of creating that new paradigm, stepping into that bigger and broader story of ourselves, in some ways is not work that's going to be the work of a moment. 
because it has to be done in a distributed way, it has to be built up everywhere. But then, in some ways, it absolutely is the work of a moment because I believe where we are now is that all of these possibilities have been built. I mean, you've looked across the NHS, you know, the probably by Bay centres and the preventive health systems and the peer networks in places like Sheffield and Wigan and so on. All of these systems and processes, I think, are now kind of pregnant and ready with possibility, just as Gov Zero prepared the ground for a new future of the relationship between citizen and state in Taiwan. And in that, there is the work of a moment to be done, but we actually have to flip into it. And creating that and seizing that moment is really difficult. I want to remind you and our listeners of what happened in the UK during that first wave of COVID because I can throw the lens of these three stories across that. We reacted too slow as a nation because our government saw us as consumers and thought that we wouldn't take the collective action that might be necessary. Then when we reacted and reacted too late, the subject story was imposed, the kind of COVID, the invisible mugger, stay home, do as you're told, we'll sort it. And then when that story collapsed, Actually, what was going on around the country was the citizen story, mutual aid groups, street WhatsApp groups, the NHS first responder scheme being oversubscribed to the extent that the sign-up crashed within two days. And so that was a moment of potential. Sometimes often a thought experiment, like imagine if when you remember that message change from stay home to stay alert in May 2020, when that happened, what if actually... The message hadn't changed from stay home to stay alert, but had changed from stay home to let's do this. What if government had come in behind what we were doing all over the country? What if councils had been supported to step into the new modes of working they'd adopted? If schools had been supported to keep producing their PPE and and move into more of a kind of integrated role in their local communities? If, 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 if. And that would have been possible. I mean, the Taiwanese had done a lot of those sorts of things and published an article in an English language journal listing 124 things they'd already done before we even went into lockdown. Like these stories and possibilities were available and out there. But because we were so trapped in the story, that couldn't be seen. And so we did move back into the consumer story and that instinct to solidarity, as you would call it, got hushed just as Back in the beginning of the Taiwanese story, the the economic power-up plan was an attempt to sort of hush the population in that time. And so just like, I think the opportunity is that the ground is being prepared. And if you, when you start to see through the lens of these stories, you do see instances of the citizen vibe everywhere across the world, actually. The question is like, how do we create the moments when the story can shift? But that shift, The problem is it's been often heralded and yet hasn't arrived. So we have periodic upsurges of enthusiasm for localism. We have the rise of communitarian thinking. We have David Cameron's ill-fated big society. What is it that makes it different this time, do you think? I think this comes back to the question of story. And seeing it through the lens of these narratives. Because when the big society idea was put forward, it was attempted to be sold into the consumer story. And there wasn't a kind of redesign of the internal structures. It was just a stepping back and creating a space, which is part of what's necessary. But there wasn't an investment in the redesigning of 
of the institutions and structure of our society in order to facilitate that. It was it was a kind of let's reduce the role of the state of local government rather than let's transform the role of the state and local government and its mindsets and structures. And I think how you embody that, how you create that possibility is is a really key part of this. So let me give you an example. One of the things I've been working on over the last couple of years is a campaign called the People's Plan for Nature, which was timed to to launch into the world with David Attenborough's Wild Isles documentary earlier this year. And the idea of that was to use the processes of deliberative and participatory democracy hosted by the big nature NGOs to crowdsource a people's plan for nature in the UK. But the process of doing that involves inviting those nature NGOs and councils and, and, and to step into a different idea of themselves as facilitators and holders of the space for citizens to lead rather than either just to step out of the way or to do it for them as is currently the dominant mode. And that campaign hasn't been perfect and I'm not claiming I know exactly how to do this, but I think there's something in that's the sort of approach I think we need to build more of. I'm involved in various conversations now around the idea of a, a much bigger and broader coalition of organizations coming together around what you might call a people's plan for climate resilience. I'm doing some work in the US with a guy called Baratunde Thurston, who happens to have a podcast called How to Citizen, where he uses the word citizen as a verb to turn that podcast into not only a TV series, but also the kind of launching point for a crowdsourcing process for what we're calling the Declaration of Interdependence as a celebration of the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And I think what I'm looking back to is that GovZero moment and the GovZero approach, because what they did, I think, was they showed, showed the role of art and imagination and creativity in envisioning and making real a different relationship between citizen and state, citizen and society, the individual and society. That then becomes available to step into. One of the most profound moments in the research for the book was interviewing various people around the Taiwanese story. And several said to me, we didn't think the Speaker of the Parliament would do what he did. And we didn't think he would validate the protest and stand by the protesters. And and in that moment, everything changed. And if he hadn't, the words that they used were, Gulf Zero would have gone back to being an arts project. And so I think in this moment in time, that work of this is why I'm so excited to have Brian Eno writing the foreword for me and, and I've been enjoying kind of nuggeting on this with him. The role of art in, in allowing us to kind of imagine and rehearse this possible future and then make it real and tangible for people. I think that's a huge part of the challenge at the moment. So we're running out of time, John. So I've just got two more questions, but they're important ones, I think. So the first is to return to the beginning of our conversation because I guess another difference in the way in which we describe very similar things is that when I talk about solidarity, hierarchy, individualism, I want to say that each has got their strengths, but also each has got their downside. And we kind of know what the down, you know, the hierarchy is an obvious one. We kind of know that the strengths of hierarchy might be kind of strategy and insight and accountability, but the problems of hierarchy are to do with bureaucracy and control and self-serving people in power, etc. But solidarity is the same in the sense that solidarity is other regarding, it's generous, it's mobilizing, it's idealistic, but it can also, in my view, be defensive, it can be tribal, it can 
be backward looking. Now, I don't want to get into the kind of differences between notions of citizenship and solidarity, but I guess I do want to ask about the kind of pathologies of trying to do things in this kind of collective way. And and I'm going to choose one in particular and ask how you get around this, which is the notion of activist capture. When I've worked in membership organisations and social movements throughout my life, and a recurrent issue has been the capture of those organisations or those processes by activists who then behave in ways which really alienate people who are not activists. How do you deal with that challenge of bringing people together in ways which don't end up with what seems to me to be an almost inherent problem of activist capture? I know you say that let's get too far into the differences between solidarity and citizenship or individualism and consumer story, but I do think there are some. I mean, I and I do think it's important. Like, I think the subject story, just in you saying like strategy and insight are strengths of the hierarchy approach, I think that's in my frame of of the subject story that I would never say that strategy and insight are, are strengths of the subject story. I mean, we're seeing that in Putin at the moment. Because I think what you're projecting onto the a floor of a solidarity frame onto the citizen story, and and because I don't see them as identified one another, so one of the ways I describe these three is subjects are dependent, consumers are independent, and citizens are interdependent. And I think what you allow yourself the space for with a in the citizen story is you allow yourself the space for the idea of a shared purpose and the idea of the role of a facilitator. And the idea of a citizen leader. So there's a line in my kind of, again, subject consumer citizen, the role of leaders and organizations in the subject story is to command, in the consumer story is to serve, and in the citizen story is to facilitate. And I think that idea of holding space, holding purpose, there is a role for leadership that I am not disappearing, that I think perhaps is disappeared in maybe a blunter solidarity frame. So take, for example, the work we've done with the National Trust. The idea of the National Trust as growing the nation's love of special places, as holding the relationship between people and place and championing the importance of that relationship, actually has been quite helpful in helping that organization to manage the danger of activist capture because it allows it to appeal back to a higher sense of purpose that everyone is supposed to be there for and to create structures and institutions that allow that to be retained. I mean, the reason I go back to the comparison is because I think they are slightly different things. And when you have that sense of higher purpose that you're trying to hold together, and when you also put that together with some of the tools like sortition-based assemblies and so on, you can ensure that there's a basis on which to have the conversation that avoids activist capture. But you can also ensure that there are the tools and processes that enable representation in a way that gets you away from activist capture, which I don't think a sort of solidarity frame can offer in the same way. I'm going to finish with a kind of topical question, which is, I'm sure you have conversations, as I do, about the likelihood of a new government being elected at some point towards the end of next year. To what extent do you think, Len, let's just assume that the bookmakers are right and that Labour is likely to win that election, given, and I'm sure this is something we do agree about, the completely broken nature of Whitehall, the way that central government does things, the relationship between government and people. Do you have any sense that folk in the higher ranks of the Labour Party are interested in any of this? I remember I tried to persuade Ed Miliband once, unsuccessfully, when he was Labour leader, 
to insert into his speech when Labour was, I think, a little bit ahead in the polls, a passage in which he said, look, we talk about winning power if we win the election, but we don't win power if we win the election. What we win is the opportunity to create power by working with people. Now, he wouldn't go anywhere near that, but I still believe it. But I haven't heard Keir Starmer say things like that either. So I don't know, are you speaking to Labour? Do you feel that they're interested in your ideas? Do you think that we might see a government that recognises how badly things are broken, how different things, everything from the NHS to local government needs to be? Not at all. No. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's a simple answer. <laughs> but this, for me, is what I was trying to say earlier. I don't see that the existing systems and structures can possibly sort of evolve themselves. The actors involved are too trapped within the existing story. And this is, again, why I find the Taiwan story or the People's Plan for Nature or these sorts of processes so essential because... I think it has to come from outside. It will need people in the next government to be able to acknowledge it and step into it and to not block it, as it were. But that is the most that we can expect of them and that is the most we should expect of them. The work has to be to, as Per Buckminster Fuller again, that work has to be to create the new reality, not to sort of try and fight this thing and argue for it from within the existing frames because it simply won't happen. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, I think, Someone has to throw the ball and someone has to catch it. I think we can get to a place, and I'm doing some really interesting work at the moment with a gang called the Apolitical Foundation working on how you train politicians, how you invite politicians into the, the ideas of participatory democracy and, and equip them to, to understand and embrace, but not necessarily even to go as far as kind of championing and, and fighting for them. I think it's more about how do we get to a place, like the role that the Speaker of the Parliament played in Taiwan wasn't to lead the Gov Zero movement. It was to validate it and endorse it, to catch the ball that they'd thrown, to use your metaphor. Well, look, John, it's been great talking to you. Freud talked about the narcissism of small differences. And I suspect the reason that we've disagreed a bit on various things is because we... Basically agree. Because we, <laughs> we agree about so much. You can find out all about the New Citizenship Project if you just put it into your favourite web browser and do get a copy of Citizens published in 2022. It is a fascinating and inspiring book. John, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I agree with so much that John argues, but I also think that in many ways we are running out of time and that if we don't do things differently, things will get much, much worse. So it's vital that when it comes to the next election, I think that we don't just ask of our politicians what they want to do with power, but how they think about power and how they think government could decisively shift power into the hands of its citizens. Goodbye. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.